The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. You are good in particular for how you pour your love on us and deal with us in our fallenness and in our sin. We worship you. We give thanks to you for grace. Lord, would you come and right now, today, at this time, in this place, would you be present in power to lift up your word and open it to us and make clear to us truths that will honor Christ and what he has done and will change your people and how we think and live and interact with you and will change those who are not yet your people and will draw some to you even this morning. Lord, that is our prayer. Would you do that, please? Your steadfast love endures forever. Would you pour it out now in those particular ways? That's our request. Father, give clarity to my words, give clarity to my thinking, give clarity to all of our listening and pondering as we hear your scripture. It is life to us. Would you make it clear? Of all the things we need in life, Lord, we need the most, most we need to hear from you. So speak. That's our prayer for the glory of Christ and for the good of your church. We pray this. Amen. I can change that light perhaps. If you could stand the sight of it, the smell of it, the feel of it, and perhaps the accidental taste of it, you could go swimming in the Great Salt Lake. I have not done it. I've been to the beach at Saltaire once, just once, and that was good enough. But I understand that you can't actually swim in a lake, and if you did, as soon as you got out, you'd be desperately looking for one of those little beachside showers that they sometimes put around saltwater beaches to help swimmers wash off all the sticky salt and the sand. You'd be looking for one of those to wash off the experience. But later that night, as you got home... Before you went to bed in your nice clean bed with your crisp white sheets, you'd probably think about taking a second shower, one with soap and shampoo, to get off everything, including the sunscreen. The, one, the shower you know, at the beach, that was really helpful. It got off a lot of the, the basic junk. But you're not quite clean yet. If you want to be fully cleansed, you need to take another shower. Is that how the gospel works? Is that how the gospel works? A whole bunch of the yuck that's on you, that's in you due to your fallen nature, a lot of it gets washed off at the cross. But a little more, a little more, a little more needs to be dealt with in subsequent cleansings. By your efforts, by your behavior, by your self-reform, by your obedience. And then at the end of that, you can stand clean before God. Is that the gospel? 
Is that how the gospel works? Some think so. And some seem to think so. But to the glory of God, it is not. It is not. We are clean, cleansed once by one shower, by one washing, only and totally. Our text today in Acts 15 will give us a chance to think about that. Acts 15 deals with a, a particular discussion one day in the city of Jerusalem. And as we look at that discussion and the conclusion, it will give us a chance to think about the one cleansing of the cross. And my hope is that as you come out of this, you will hope in, trust in only that cleansing and nothing else in addition to it. It's Acts 15. Last week, in Acts chapter 14, we saw the second half, the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. The chapter ends with them back home in Antioch, but most of the chapter is them walking around and preaching and ministering amidst much tribulation through what would now be basically south-central Turkey. They travel around from city to city, and the message they proclaim over and over again amidst a lot of hardship is a message of grace. Grace, undeserved, unmerited, unearned blessing from God. It is grace because of what the message provides. It's about access to, about being joined to the living God. Casting aside all the vain things of life and being joined to the living God who has made himself available. That's grace. We spend most of our lives stiff-arming him, but he says, I'm going to make myself available. Grace. And it is a message of grace because of how he makes himself available. Not by work. Not by effort or by obedience, but purely by faith in his work on the cross. It is a message of grace they preach from city to city to city, and the church is planted and grows from that, and that message is strongly opposed everywhere they go. They end that journey, and they come back to Antioch, and they come there to rest, and shortly they find out that, ironically, that message of grace is also strongly opposed from within the church. Which brings us to our passage for today, Acts chapter 15. Let me read Acts 15, read verses 1 to 21 this morning. Acts 15, 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, 
you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The end of chapter 14, as I said, we have Paul and Barnabas back in Antioch, and it is to that city and that church, which you'll recall is a very diverse, largely Gentile church. It's to that church that some messengers come from Jerusalem, claiming, though it's not true, we find out later, claiming to come bearing a message with the authority of the Jerusalem church behind it. They come and they declare, unless you all get circumcised, you cannot be saved. That's not, there's like more to Christianity that you're not experiencing. It's cannot be saved. Without this, you are unacceptable to God. And that message caused a huge conflict. You can read more about it from Paul's perspective in the second half of Galatians chapter 2. Find out more information there. That when this message hit the church, it had such power behind it and such influence that for a time even... Peter himself and Barnabas, who'd been traveling on this missionary journey, both of them are led away a little bit, and they withdraw from the Gentiles, thinking maybe there is some separation between the two of us. This is a serious issue that threatens the very definition of the gospel and the unity of these two wings of the church, the Gentile and the Jewish wing of the church. It's a big deal. It's a serious issue. And so, Naturally, Paul and and Barnabas, at at one point, engage them in much debate. Paul vehemently disagrees. And after they argue this out for a little while, the church in Antioch decides, we have to resolve this. It came from Jerusalem. We're going to have to resolve it in Jerusalem. And they dispatch a delegation to go up to Jerusalem and get it settled. On the way, they travel through other Gentile lands, relating how God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And wherever they go, people are excited to hear about that. 
These are largely Gentile churches in these Gentile lands, and they're ecstatic to hear about how the gospel's growing. They're encouraged. Even when they get to Jerusalem, it seems that most of Jerusalem's encouraged as well, but not everybody. Verse 5 brings up the issue again. Believers from the party of the Pharisees say they have to, we must, it is necessary. They're arguing God says they must keep the law. They must be circumcised if they want to be saved. This is believers saying this. This is different than in chapter 13 where you have non-believing Jews arguing. It says they are believers, people from within the church arguing this. How can Christians say that? Well, put yourself in their shoes. It particularly notes they're from the party of the Pharisees who, as Paul would relate, were zealous for the law, just like Paul was. They're Jews, grown up their whole lives in Judaism, zealous for the law, very concerned to be obedient to God and to follow him. In their minds, they are what the Old Testament would describe as the remnant of Israel, true Israel. Throughout the prophets, throughout all the Old Testament, you have Israel, those who are ethnically Jews, and you have faithful Israel, the remnant, those who hold to Moses, those who are concerned to follow God, And these folks think they are the remnant. They are holding fast to God, to his word, to his promises, hoping in one day his coming Messiah. And when Jesus arrives, they trust him. They see he is the Messiah. And so in their minds, this is a completion. The Old Testament's been holding out a hope. Jesus is the completion of it, the Messiah for faithful Israel. Not a replacement. It's not either or. It's a completion. And so they would say to somebody, sure, You can get the Messiah of Israel, come into Israel and receive the Messiah of Israel. How do you come into Israel? You get circumcised. That's what's going on in their minds. Now, they misunderstand some things, but that's their perspective. It needs to be sorted out. So they gather together, the elders and the apostles, to discuss it. And this seems to be a, a, a noble type of discussion. It seems like everybody gets their chance to talk. There's no side put down. There's a lot of debate. And then finally at the end, it's brought to conclusion by the elders as Peter, who had strayed but has now come back, Peter stands to speak. Verses 7 to 11 are Peter's last appearance in the book of Acts. We're about halfway through the book, and this is Peter's finale, which is interesting because his final act is to pass the baton to Paul. Is to say, what Paul is preaching is true. Here, go with it. And then he's gone. He disappears. How does he do that? How does he affirm Paul's ministry? By bringing up the story of Cornelius. As he tells the story of Cornelius that we could read about in chapter 10, he tells it accurately from the perspective of God's initiative. God chose me to go carry the gospel to them. It wasn't my idea. God did it. And then God bore witness to them when God gave them the Holy Spirit. It's God at work saving Cornelius and his Gentile household. So who are we to put God to the test? There's echoes there of the Old Testament. Sounds like a statement made to faithless Israel. Testing God once his will had already been made clear. We had best not test God. And his will has been made clear in Cornelius. And when he sits down, verse 12 says that the assembly was silent. There's a a feel there that what he said struck home. 
and they're sitting and thinking that through. He did that with Cornelius. That's true. Hmm. And then Paul and Barnabas arise. Barnabas, who had strayed also, now has come back. Now he says, here's what happened. And they tell their stories about the missionary journey. And when he's done, James rises. James is the leader of the church. Sometime prior to this, we read back in chapter 12 when Peter was released from prison that James was the leader of the church then and he wanted James to know about his situation. James is a brother of Jesus, wrote the letter in in the New Testament. He's the leader of this church and he is a devout Jew. He spent his whole Christian life devoutly practicing Judaism. He maintained temple law, ceremonial law, ceremonial food. In fact, non-Christians, Jews in Jerusalem, non-Christians had an extremely high respect for James because he was devout. It's probably why these messengers that went to Antioch claimed to have come from James. They thought, surely James agrees with us on this. And so when he rises, they're probably thinking, well, Peter disagrees, but James, James is in our camp. And then he speaks, and he says, Simeon, a very Hebrew way of referring to Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, and get this, this is an important phrase, to take from them a people for his name. And as soon as he says that, we don't get it in English, but as soon as he says that, everybody in the room knows the case is decided. You ever been listening to someone who's about to render a judgment and the person says, this sounds pretty good, and this sounds pretty good, and this sounds pretty good, and you don't know which way he's going to go yet, and this sounds pretty good, but, and you know, there's the verdict. Everything he says after this is just an explanation of the verdict. This sentence is that verdict. God had first, Peter's day, visited the Gentiles to gather for himself a people for his name. He uses two different words there. The standard word for Gentile, nations, peoples of the earth, you might say. He visited them to gather for himself a people. Different word. A people for his name. There are two groups here, and this directly mirrors Old Testament language. A great place to see this is Deuteronomy 14.2. You can jot that down there. You see this concept. It says in Deuteronomy 14.2, the Lord speaking to Israel, you are a people, holy to the Lord, a people for his treasured possession from amongst all the peoples of the earth. There's people, and God took Israel out and made them his people, his special ones, his treasured possession. And James just said that Simeon just told us how it's not Jew and other God, in fact, has gone to other and is gathering his people, his treasured possession from them. To which every Jew in the room would be thinking, hey, we're the treasured possession. That's supposed to be us. James would say, evidently not anymore. Evidently not. He's gathered the Gentiles and made them his people, right along with us. Just like Peter four times draws this contrast. Them and us, them and us, them and us, them and us. Them, just like us, the same. The people of God. It's just like Amos would talk about. And then he quotes the prophet Amos. 
two parts in this quotation from Amos. The first part is talking about the lifting up, the rebuilding of the tent of David. The reign of David had fallen. The Davidic king no longer reigned, and God's going to rebuild that, lift it up and restore it. How? In Christ. And when that happens, what happens? The Gentiles, those called by his name, are gathered in, just like we're seeing happen now. So here's my verdict. And it does have that feel of verdict. This is hard for those of us who are more democratic and prefer a congregational sort of approach. James is making a decision. Here's my verdict. Leave them alone. Don't trouble them. They're in just like us. But we should write to them that for the sake of the weaker brothers, Jews, they should refrain from a few things related to the sacrificial laws. That stuff's going to be a stumbling block to Jewish believers and it's going to be a hindrance to evangelism to Jews. So ask them, tell them to stay away from that, to refrain from it, not to be saved, but for the sake of the others around them. To not create a stumbling block for them. That's the passage. That's as far as we're going today. Next week we'll look at the reaction amongst the Gentile churches and how this played out. But today we're just going to focus on the council's decision. The discussion and the decision. And realizing, seeing what they've realized, here's our main point for this morning. Here it is. Trust God's gospel of grace. Trust God's gospel of grace by which he cleanses for himself a people. There is a message, a gospel, good news. That's what that word means. There is a message of good news, and it is a message of grace. Because it cleanses people, washes us totally clean, one shower only. It washes people clean and makes them the people of God. There's one message that does that. One gospel, and we should trust it, grab hold of it, and never let go of it. Trust it, and trust only it. And divide that in half and look at two pieces of it, two related observations stemming from that main point. Trust God's gospel of grace by which he cleanses his people. First observation is directly coming from this, the main deal in this passage, the discussion, the, the issue, the the disagreement about what the gospel actually is. How does a person actually get saved? That's the main question here. And so here's the first observation. The gospel cleanses apart from the yoke of the law. The gospel cleanses apart from the yoke of the law. That which is worthy of the name gospel cleanses separate from apart from, not joined to, not stacked on top of, not in partnership with, separate from the yoke of the law. The great issue before every single person, the great issue before every one of us is how do you stand before God? And you do stand before God. You, by yourself, one-on-one, you stand before God. How do you stand before him? The great purpose of the law, then, to make it simple, is to tell you how you stand before God. You stand before God guilty. 
dirty, covered in vileness. We never think of ourselves that way. Never. We just don't. Which is why the law is so good for us. Because it makes that clear constantly in direct declaration or in in implication from story. It holds up to us, this is God, holy and pure, without any blemish whatsoever. And to be standing before Him accepted, you must be just like Him, holy and pure, and you are not. The law says that again and again, directly or by implication. And it also carries another little message in there. But here's how you can sort of, temporarily, for the time, solve this problem. The law is full of sacrifice. Think of a a classic example from the law. Think of the temple. The whole purpose of the temple. You've got all of the world, the nation of Israel, one city, Outer court, out, yeah, court, 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 until you get to the smallest central place where God dwells. And the message of that whole thing is you cannot come here. You can't. You're not worthy and you never will be. Only one person, one time a year, with the blood of the special sacrificial lamb can come into the presence of God. Everybody else is unworthy and cannot do anything to become worthy to come into the temple of God and into his presence. None. But there's a sacrifice that can tide you over for the year. Offer it this year, and next year, and next year, and next year, and next year. You can be temporarily fixed. So the law is pointing out, you stand before God guilty and you can be sort of, kind of cleaned for a moment. It's pointing towards a time when you could be once and for all cleaned. Everybody in the room in Acts 15 understands that. They all understand that with the law only, I cannot be justified. I cannot be made clean before God. They all get they can't come into the temple. They can't come into the inner sanctuary. They all understand that. The question is, is the cross to be stacked on top of what I do in the law? That's the question. My keeping of the law, I keep some parts of it. I mean, I'm a lawbreaker for sure, but I do keep some parts of it. And is it such that I keep as much as I can and after I've done all I can, the cross comes on top of that and takes care of the rest? Is that the deal? Or is it rather that this over here, doing all of you can, still leaving yourself short, points you to something else totally separate, the cross? Which is it? Separate or together stacked on top of each other? And this text makes crystal, crystal, crystal clear that it is the latter. It is separate, not joined together, one shower, not two stacked on top of each other. How does it make it clear? Cornelius. The story of Cornelius. Peter reminds everybody about Cornelius, a Gentile soldier. Yes, he was attempting to follow God, the God of the Bible, But he was a Gentile because he had specifically said, I am not going to keep all the law. In particular, I am not going to be circumcised. The exact issue these guys are arguing about, Cornelius said, "Uh uh-uh. 
That's why he's still a Gentile. He said, no, I will not do that. He rejected those key parts of the law that they are arguing about. But you all know God sent me to him to preach. And what did I preach? Well, flip back to chapter 10. You could find out. Chapter 10, verses 39 to 43, and you see there what I talked about. I preached Christ. I preached Christ come down to earth. God joined to human flesh. God made man, not man made God. God made man come to earth, rejected, hung on the tree. Here's that special word. We talked about this before. We saw it on Paul's lips. Here it's on Peter's lips in chapter 10. The tree tying to the Old Testament's concept of those hung on a tree are cursed by God. Jesus hung on a tree cursed for sin and then raised approved. This is what I preached. Raised, raised up on high to be the judge of all the earth, of the living and the dead, and the potential savior of all the earth. Verse 43 of that chapter. Everyone Everyone who believes will receive forgiveness of their sins. That's what I preached. Not a word about being circumcised. Not a word about keeping the law of Moses. Not a word about changing your life. Not a word about anything but simply Christ crucified, raised, trust him and you'll be forgiven. And what happened? I'm not even done speaking yet. And God, who knows the heart, looks and sees that they believe in their hearts. And he gives them the Spirit, the sign of the messianic age to come. God approved of them. He doesn't give the Spirit to anybody he doesn't approve of. He gave the Spirit to them, washed them clean by faith, accepted them, cleansed them. And they didn't do anything. They couldn't. They sat there on the floor and believed as they listened. And he saved them, cleansing them, accepting them, period. That's what I said. That's what happened. That's the end of the story. God cleanses people with this gospel entirely separate from, divorced from the yoke of the law, which should cause us to worship the sufficiency of the cross. It's not pretty good. It's not really helpful. It's totally sufficient to wipe every sin off of you. To cleanse you from within completely if you trust it. Obviously, this whole setting is an internal discussion about the gospel. These are Christians talking to Christians about what the gospel is. They're not deliberately talking to non-Christians. But I hope that if if you're sitting here this morning and you have not yet totally and only trusted Christ's cross to pay for your sin, if you're still trying to join it to your works and your effort, you're obedient to be good and right, if that's you, realize that's not Christianity and that is not the gospel. But also realize that there is a message here for you. There is a message of hope here for you. You can be cleansed. You can be. Once and for all. And that cleansing comes by this gospel of grace that is entirely separate from the yoke of the law. Do you know what a yoke is? Using that word, do you know what a yoke is? Think of a farm setting. 
Think of an animal of burden, like, like an ox or a, maybe a steer or a horse even. An animal that is fastened to a load, like a plow or a wagon. The big piece of wood that sits over the animal or the team of animals. Maybe it's a wood and leather combination. A huge piece of wood that fastens them to the load. That's the yoke. And the yoke of the law is a yoke that nobody can bear. It'd be like being fastened to this wagon and loading a thousand tons in it and saying, giddy up. And you strain against it and you don't move. You cannot bear the yoke of the law, the yoke that says, be holy, be perfect, be pure and sinless in thought life, in attitude, in affections, in aspirations and hopes and desires, in your feelings. The law says that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, totally, first, above all things. Not ever to become cross or to complain or to whine. Not ever to love other things of the world, even other good things in place of God. That is a huge load. Huge. You can't bear that. You can't. Now, you could bear that yoke if you modify the requirements. If you modify it to be something like, rather than be perfect, to be, be better than lots of other people. You can probably do that. Or if you modify it, instead of saying, be pure and sinless in heart and motive, you change it to be pure and sinless in external behaviors with my hands, a few of them at least. Maybe you can do that. But of course, that's not what God's law says. All of us fall short. You're not clean on the inside, but you can be cleansed by faith, verse 9. You can be cleansed by the grace of Christ, verse 11. What are you supposed to do with that? Trust him, obviously. Turn to him in faith. Setting aside what you're doing in an attempt to make yourself right with God, set that aside and say, I trust only in the cross. It's payment for me, period. There's a message there. If you're not a Christian, I hope you hear it. But obviously, the, the main point of this passage is it's an internal debate between Christians. And so there's something here for Christians as well for how we think about the gospel, for how we think about and embrace and live in a gospel that cleanses apart from law. It does something interesting that James highlights. And that's going to move us towards our second observation. The second one is the ramification of the first. The gospel cleanses by grace apart from law. Here's the second observation. All those cleansed by this gospel of grace are the true people of God. If you're cleansed by the gospel, you are the people of God. And there is a people. There is a community. A chosen, precious, special, glorious, treasured possession. 
These are all different words that God uses to describe his people. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There is a particular people for whom Christ is the prophet, on behalf of whom Christ is the priest, and over whom Christ is the king. There is a particular people, and praise God that he is now no longer only drawing that people from a particular ethnicity. This is the point that James is pressing home. He's drawing from amongst all the nations. He's picking people from all these groups and making a people with them. Fully, full citizenship. Which means, listen to, for instance, Ephesians 2. Speaking to Gentiles, he says, Once you were far off, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, But now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the gospel. Brought near, made the people of God by the blood of Christ. Through him we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Brought near, given access to the Father, to this living God, by the blood of Christ. Which means that if you're sitting here and you're a Christian, you know this, but let me encourage you, think about this. Which means that if you're sitting here as a Christian, you are the child of God. You are his people. Which means that all of the promises of the Old Testament that are yes in Christ are yes to you. All of his promises about blessing, protection, provision, heart sustenance, a future place to live in and a future king to reign over you, all of those things fall on you. And he looks at you in delight. He sings over you. He loves you. You. If you're a guy, maybe you want to say, He really, really, really likes you. He is extremely fond of you. Think of all those phrases treasured possession. He has affection for you. He has accepted you. You are joined to him. Because of what you did? No, entirely separate from the, cro- from the work that you've done and only because of the cross. Because of Christ's cross, he has made you his people, drawn you near to him, accepted you, placed you in grace in which you stand, poured out his love on you. Now, you probably know those things, but here's what happens. Many of us think like this. He takes delight in me because I have trusted in the cross and because I didn't look at porn this week. He takes delight in me because I've trusted in the cross and I've been sober for a month. 
I am his treasured possession because of the cross and because I read my Bible regularly and I maintain my prayer time and I give my tithe and I keep my family in order. And, and, and. A lot of us think like that. I would venture to say all of us think like that from time to time. I know that I do. Check yourself. Do you think like that? It's crazy to think like that. But we do. It's crazy because it's a returning back to where we came from. We, we declare, we stand on, we hope in, I am made right with God only because of the cross, not because of anything that I've done. And then we go right back to that and we say, but I'm acceptable to him today because of the cross and because of what I've done. We're reverting right back to where we came from. That's crazy. And it's crazy because the only way you can say, you know, I'm doing pretty well today. I think I'm pleasing to him. It's because you're selective. You're doing pretty well in the stuff that you're trying to decide if you're doing pretty well in. But there's, you have no idea. We are each far worse than we know. Sin hides in us in all kinds of places that we're just completely unaware of. And so when you're evaluating yourself today and saying that he, today he delights in me because of the cross and because I'm doing pretty well, rest assured you're being selective. There's a whole list of stuff that you're a failure in. I know someone who once said, a little interestingly, said to a Christian, Christian talking to a Christian, he said, take heart, you're far worse than you realize. And the grace of Christ is far greater than you realize. You think you're doing pretty well here. There's all of that that you have no idea how much of a failure you are in. If you could bring that to the table, you'd say, oh, my word. But if then you bring the grace of God to the table, you'd say, oh, wow, what grace. He covered that at the cross, too, for me. Check yourself and see if you think like this. You'll know it if you find a little bit of a little bit of uh, satisfaction, a little bit of pride today. I'm doing pretty well. Or if you find a little bit of distraught sorrow, I'm not doing well today. It probably does not look at me in affection. Maybe he doesn't even love me today. I better get my act together. Or that guy better get his act together. We do it both ways. We must not think like that. What, can you imagine... What it would be like to fully put the Pharisees of Acts 15 to bed and to lay down that yoke of cross plus and to pick up the yoke of Christ that is easy and his burden is light, to pick that up and to walk in it and to live justified, really accepted and forgiven, to live really cleansed. Can you imagine that? It would be a marvelous thing. It would be a marvelous thing. We would live as if we are actually accepted by him on the basis of grace alone, not by any works. And I would not boast when I do well, and I would not sorrow when I do poorly. Let me carefully qualify something. Do not misunderstand me to be saying that God does not care if we sin. That's not true. God does not say, I forgive you of everything and I couldn't care less what you do. That's not true. 
He does very much want us to walk in and to pursue and to grow in holiness. That's clear. He disciplines us when we walk away from him. But realize this, that nothing, nothing, nothing that he says to you comes from anywhere but love and grace. If you're a Christian, that's how he deals with you only and always. Even his work in you to produce sanctification, his disciplining work in you to grow you in holiness, that is his work of love and grace on you. So when you sin, you stand before him and you say, I sinned. And he says, yes, you sinned. Let's grow in that. Come to me. Let me renew your mind and your heart and change you and help you to grow. I was trying to think of how to explain this from my own life. And I was thinking of different examples throughout this week, throughout this week. And there were some good ones, but nothing really helpful. And so I just skipped over it until I'm, I'm sitting here in the service and realizing that'd be a good example. Within the last two hours, which if you do the math has been during this service, something occurred that I responded to in frustration and a little bit of anger inside. And then I realized my sinful attitude, and it can be a bit of a bummer to realize I'm sinning and I'm about to preach. That creates a little bit of tension in your heart. So what do you do with that? If you've been listening to this, what you do with that is you go to the Father and say, I am sinning. I I see my attitude here. It's wrong. Forgive me and change me. Help me to believe the cross that you delight in me. Yeah, you don't want me to have that response. Change me, please. I don't want to have that response either. I'm I'm letting go of that sin. I'm forsaking it, knowing that I'm going to pick it up again later because I'm a sinner. But God, would you change me just a little bit? Would you grow me a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more? The next time when that happens, I'll respond more like you would want me to. And right now, I'm going to know you've forgiven me. And I can go preach. It's believing the gospel that you are accepted, you are his person, you are one of his people based on the grace at the cross, not on your behaviors. It isn't the case. But how that creeps into us. Set that down. Set it down. Deal with God in grace. Deal with sin, absolutely. Deal with him in grace. Grace of this gospel, given at the cross, separate from your works of obedience. There is a message of grace. Trust it. It's the message by which he cleanses his people. Walk in that. Let me pray. Father, would you enable us to hope in your grace, to bank our lives on it. Those of us who are Christians, to remember that you have made us your people. It doesn't depend on our ethnicity, our gender, our social class. It only depends on the cross and our trusting in it. 
make that shine in our hearts and minds and give us grace to live in light of it, Lord, to know your acceptance and your love. To do that in my heart, in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, and Lord, in the hearts of those who are not yet in your family, would you call them? Would you make it clear to them that there is hope here at the cross? Draw them, I pray. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the gospel. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.